0: Hello everybody, I'm Ralph Ben Murgey and this is I uh, not that kind of rabbi. Now I should clarify for you, I'm not a rabbi. I am a spiritual director, but I'm not a rabbi. If I was a rabbi though, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. And that's why we called this not that kind of rabbi. I think I've said rabbi enough. A couple more times I went in a car.
1: And you're not talking about that convenience change.
0: No. No.
1: Just double-checking.
0: Yeah. Uh, So uh, the deal here is we talk about things, but we talk about them through the spiritual lens. Uh, I shall rant for a moment, if you don't mind, everyone. Um, One of the things I'm having trouble with is the land dedication. The land dedication that I'm hearing uh, people say, and they really mean it, I think, or or else they've been told they should really mean it. And I'm being honest about this, because I I, I do, uh, you know... uh, Full disclosure, I, I do work in political communications at times for progressive movements and environmental causes. And, you know, you get to a place and they go, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional lands of, and then, you know, and they, they go through it. Um, and there's just something about that that I find has become gratuitous in a lot of cases. and I and I And I know it was started with the best of intentions, but it's become, I don't know, softened around the edges, uh, obligatory, um, perfunctory, uh, happy we got that out of the way. Let's move on, which is kind of the way I see the whole relationship we've had with First Nations as it, as it is anyway. Uh, I remember years ago I was doing, um, they had this, they tried to do this game show in Canada and, uh, I, I wasn't in, getting into television at the time and, the powers that be at the CBC thought I should be one of the contestants. Uh, And they asked what charity you wanted to give to. And I said, well, I don't know if you'd call it a charity, but it has charitable status. So I I wanted to give it to the uh, Indigenous Centre in Toronto. Uh, And the reason I wanted to do that was because I had gone to school at the University of Alberta, um, got kicked out of the fine arts acting program after about a year. Uh, But I'd never been out west, I had always lived in Toronto uh, growing up, when we came from Morocco, and there I was in Edmonton, and I was on the north side, the the university's on the south side, I was on the north side one night, and I saw devastation, I saw cultural genocide going on around me, Uh, people dead on their feet, and they were native, and I'd never, in Toronto, there was one corner at Spadina College, and that was where I saw anybody who was native and wasn't doing well, if they weren't, I didn't see them because they were just part of everybody else's culture. But there I was in this. And then later I lived in Winnipeg, and it was worse. It was a, it was a, we were at the CBC building on Portage, and just down the street was the Club Morocco. And we, I did a late-night music show uh, called Nightlines. And I'd get out at 3 in the morning after we'd finished taping, And there'd be fistfights going on right in front of the window. And it was uh, people who were inebriated, uh, almost all were Native. Uh, I did nothing. I yelled. I said, get away, stop it. I didn't know what to do. And I just felt like this is our tragedy. We talk about the rights of people in all kinds of parts of the world. And yet in our very own world, we have people who can't drink their own water. We have mercury in, in, in water at Grassy Narrows. It's been going on forever. We have, and it's never part of a conversation during an election. You don't, get, you don't win an election by championing these causes. So these things have all always sat in me. And so I've always taken it all very hard and very serious. But over the same amount of years, I've encountered a man named Drew Hayden Taylor who has an ability to be who he is as a native person and is funny and you're not supposed to be funny. You're supposed to be tragic. You're supposed to be serious. You're supposed to be angry. But I'm working on it. <laughs> it's not supposed to be funny. So this man is actually profound and funny, and I love it, and I've always wanted to talk to him, and uh, we have over the years a few times, but this is a chance to see things through a spiritual lens together as uh, two people who uh, happen to live on this land at this moment in time, and hello, how are you?
1: Uh, as we say on my reserve, grazie.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I am adequate. Adequate. I am adequate. At the day is still young. I don't want to make a, a, a judgment on a day yet, so I'm going to hedge my bets by saying adequate. Are you an optimistic person or a pessimistic mm. person? It Again, depends on the time of the day. I, I'd actually, in all seriousness, I'd have to say I'm primarily an optimist. Um, I, I don't see
0: how you couldn't be and write as much as you write, because mm. you would just go with it. Who cares? I'm not writing.
1: I know, I know. Or whine or complain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: No, no, no.
1: I've. I'm. One of the things that motivates me for what I'm doing is the fact that one time I had a conversation with my mother and I was trying to, you know, when I was younger, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was toying with the idea of being a writer. And I was talking with my mother about that. And I was like, I was up for some job that I wasn't sure I wanted. And my mother looked at me with a very perplexed look and said, That she had been working for 30 years, essentially cooking and cleaning for white people, and said that she'd never had a single job she enjoyed in 30 years. And that stayed with me. So part of my so-called optimism is I try and only do stuff that I find interesting, that I find necessary, that I find um, has a point to it, and that is enjoyable, So I wrap that all up, and um, there are a lot of unfortunate negative things in the Native community, in the Canadian community, in the world community. And you have to be optimistic if you're going into battle. So, um, yes, I like to think good things, which frequently gets me in trouble with a lot of uh, my compatriots in the Native community. In fact, I've been told one time I was being commissioned to write a play for a native theater company. And the artistic director said, Drew, we all know you can be funny. I would rather you be serious.
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, I'll get uh, on that.
1: Dead kittens and sick children. (laughs) You know, it's like, and I've, and I've gone on this conversation so many times where I talk about for the last 30, 40 years since um, what I refer to as the contemporary native literary Renaissance, There's been basically three storylines explored and um, uh, plowed by the native writers of this country. And they're basically... um, Historical narratives, victim narratives, and the byproducts of what I refer to as post-contact stress disorder. (laughs) And I I understand that That all makes sense because when an oppressed people get their voice back, they're going to write about being oppressed. Right. Uh, And that makes perfect sense. And I I, I was coming of age during this, and I began to think, in order to become a First Nations author, am I going to have to be dark, depressing, bleak, sad, and angry? And I was wrestling with that because... One of the things I've been very fortunate about is being born in the bosom of Indigenous humour. And I've been to 140, 150 Native communities across Canada United States. And everywhere I've been, I've been greeted with a laugh, a smile, and a joke. And I wasn't seeing this in our theatre, in our novels. It was all... All the characters were either oppressed, depressed, or suppressed. And as I said, I was going through um, an existential problem with all this because it just wasn't my
0: my did you feel guilty did you think yeah i'm supposed to be angry i'm supposed to be traumatized
1: and i i mean i was angry i grew up i grew up on a reserve i grew up in a house with no plumbing or no electricity my mother worked all the time i there were times where we would run out of uh uh uh, propane and we'd have to spend two three days with no heating whatsoever yeah i mean i went through i went through all of that and I mean, I, nothing I could do about it. I ju- you just have to. I just use that old cliche. It it gave me character, right? But for me, the turn was when I met an elder from the Blood Reserve in Alberta who said that, in his opinion, for Native people, humor is the WD forty of healing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that and that stayed with me, and so that sort of became the focus of a lot of my work. Is I wanted to work on the healing, and I know for a fact, Indigenous people have the most wonderfully developed sense of humor. I did a documentary on it for the National Film Board. I wrote a book exploring and deconstructing it called "Me Funny," and so that became my my journey, sort of um, exploring, celebrating the indigenous sense of humor.
0: Well, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we have lots of trauma to, to fall back on. You, you you do, and and pretty funny people.
1: I was uh, I was invited to a conference on multicultural humor, and of all places, Travandrium drum, I can't pronounce it, in in (laughs) India. Wow. Down in Kerala. And it was a conference on humor, on cultural humor. And I followed a woman from the University of Tel Aviv who did a presentation on humor and the Holocaust.
0: Wow.
1: Right? And it's all about survival humor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And my, my lecture followed hers. And it was literally along the same path about, about you know using humor to heal. And it was, it was, it was a fascinating experience. Well, our,
0: well, you know, when we talk about which holiday we're doing as Jews, we say, well, the way this works is they tried to kill us, they didn't make it, and uh, let's eat. That sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so your mother... Was she a positive person? My mother was. I mean, my mother was, one of my,
1: one of my lines about my family is the fact that I come from both a big and a small family at the same time. Mm. I come from a big family. My mother was the oldest of 14, mm. which is what used to happen before they had the internet. <laughs> right? And But at the same time, I come from a small family because I'm a single child of a single parent. And, wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I had a huge extended family. I had about 20, 25 first cousins. Right. Right. But in our house, it was just me and my mother. And so I had my own universe within the four walls. And if I wanted to go out and play with people, I just had to walk out the door. And I had a whole plethora of, of cousins to play with. So my mother was a very hardworking woman. She would get up at 5, 6 in the morning to, to be driven into Peterborough, where she cooked and cleaned at nursing homes or whatever. Um, and then would come back at about 3 or 4 in the afternoon and then go to bed at 8 or 9 at night. Wow. So she had a, a a tough life, but I, to me, she was always positive. She always had a good sense of humor unless something was wrong. Right. So, yeah, I'd have to say so.
0: Yeah, well, because I was thinking when she was giving you the advice about work or just the experience that she had of work, I just thought, but on the other hand... You, your optimism and your humor must have come from someplace, you know. And if she was the, the influence in your life, it could have gone either way. Well, yeah, my, I mean,
1: in all, in all fairness, too, my mother had uh, was very supportive and in some cases was not very supportive. I told her <laughs> I wanted to be a writer, and my mother looked at me and said, Why do you want to be a writer? It's not going to get you anywhere.
0: Well, you know, that's what happens when you say you want to be in the arts. Yeah,
1: I know. And so I got into the arts, and um, my mother, somebody once asked my mother, like, would. 10, 15 years ago, maybe, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, what exactly does your son do? And like, I'm on, like, I was on a, like, book 23, 24 at the time. And she said, I think he writes or something. <laughs> <laughs> she never, it was just not within her. She had a grade six education. Her first language was Anishinaabe. Uh, so she just, the idea of her son being a writer was just not within her, her area of expertise.
0: You know, one of the things uh, in some of the reading I've done is uh, we tend to glorify uh, Native way of life right that yep. it, that it's these wonderfully connected to the earth spiritual people and um who had an idyllic existence before we got here and then you sort of square that up with internecine warfare and using clamshells to tear skin off of the person on the other side. When you've Which I them. have to say, I have not personally witnessed. <laughs> <laughs> not in that sense. <laughs> but, you know, do, do, what do you think of that idea? That Well,
1: the thing I always try and stress is in the indigenous population of Canada, both post and pre-contact, were human. We had interesting warfare. We had we you know we 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 hunted, we fished, we we had problems with our neighbors. Um, I'm no expert on pre-contact civilization, but I do think our attitude towards the land was a lot healthier then than contemporary society. Yes, we had um, um, traditional rivalries, which were excess exacerbated. I think that's the word.
0: Exas- I can never say that. I know anymore. exactly. Exas- by, by contact, no, right? You have it, to yeah. keep in mind if contract happened and
1: moved further west. Various nations were pushed further west so they would bump into each other and they would compete over the same resources. So the the Lakota Sioux and the Ojibwe became um uh, went into conflict because of that squeezing. Mm-hmm. You know. So and it's my opinion that contact, because it changed the way everything was run. Um, exacerbated again that word yeah. the situation so that when finally uh, the dominant culture moved into those areas where the warfare was then happening they, a lot of them didn't really realize that it, it had been instigated by that that contact even though it was sort of still 50 years off but they'd been pushed that way Right.
0: so the perversion of the existence yeah. created more tensions but I still think that we so um, I've been doing some writing on aging and ageism, and all these different pieces. And one of the things that... Aging I, sucks. <laughs> wow, that's a short book. <laughs> what am I writing? 70,000 words later. Uh, but my, pe- my people are brief and pithy. <laughs> but but the other part of it to me was, you know, if I wore you know the, the, the robes of a shaman and, and came from a reserve and, and walked through the street, you'd think I was an elder, but mm. I'm a white guy... So uh, I'm just a senior looking for a discount at Shoppers Drug Mart, right? I mean, I'm, I, I, there's no spiritual element to our aging, but your, your people get to say an elder. I, like you just said, I, I spoke to an elder. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, one of the things, uh, a, a compliment I've received is from a, a Native friend who called me uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You're calling me uncle? I'm honored by that, right? You right. Know? Well, so there's all these pieces that you know, white guys don't do.
1: Well, for me, the the, the difference is that uh, my personal definition of what wisdom is, mm. it's intelligence plus experience. Right. I know people in their teens, 20s and 30s who are very, very smart, but not necessarily experienced. So their intelligence is very... Um, very specific and 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 short in that aspect, and I know people who are very experienced at what they do, but oh, but can't expen- extend that experience to other issues. So for me, wisdom and elder with a capital E is somebody who has has both, is very very smart, intelligent, and has lived a full life and can apply the many things they've learned in life to different situations. I think we both know, as I was talking, the capital E, there's capital E and small E. I think we all know people who are old, but not necessarily wise. Sure. Sure. Because uh, they
0: never cultivated their wisdom.
1: They, and they never utilized it. They never thought about it. They never, yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas um, as the, 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 the elders we're talking about are people who have done both, who are very smart, paid attention, know how the world operates. And, have the ability to utilize all of those decades of experience uh and and utilize it in today's world.
0: You know, I I do workshops occasionally on what I call aging to saging. So how you turn yourself from somebody who's just aging mm-hmm. and in our culture you just back into it. You don't want to yeah. talk about it, nobody wants. You don't want anyone to know your age because then they won't hire you anymore. They're looking for the young you, all these things. Mm-hmm. But there's also the aspect of as you said you can be uh, old and stupid <laughs> you don't you know you uh, just cuz you're older it doesn't mean you're wiser but right. you do have to take an inventory of life like mm-hmm. in the workshop we do obituaries where people write their own obituary Then we do uh what we call in the jewish tradition the vidui which is a reckoning right so at the the day of atonement there's a prayer you do where you knock on your chest and you list every fault and sin you could be uh culpable of and you, you absorb them, mm-hmm. you know, that you have lied to someone, that you have <laughs> cheated somehow, that you have sinned in some way. And sin is not evil act, it's misguided direction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So you do all that, but in the vidui we do, you say, well, who have you loved, and, what, you, and uh, what are you most proud of? And then, what do you regret? And then, what would you like to be remembered mm-hmm. for? So by doing things like that, you start to take and cultivate and and integrate and, and say, what was my life? When it comes to your spiritual life, how would you describe your spiritual life? Okay, first of all, let me let
1: me address something I said earlier that I think I need to clarify when I said aging sucks. You caught me on a bad day. <laughs> I've got I I've, I've developed tendinitis in this shoulder. Ah. And I'm uh, as of last year, I'm diabetic.
0: Ah, yeah. So
1: it's like it's like yes, aging sucks, but then on a recipro- reciprocal or the opposite end, I don't think I could have sat here and had this conversation with you 20 years ago. Right, I, I, you know, it's like I've amassed a certain amount of knowledge from experience, from reading, from writing, and from meeting people. That now I can sit and uh, sit or, sit around, a mic. And chat with you about something, which I'm fairly sure I couldn't do 20 years ago. So when I say aging sucks, I'm talking to physically.
0: Well, I mean, the body is, you know, as you get older, it has an
1: expiry date.
0: Well, it it also, you feel senses of betrayal. Before, you could always rely on it. You know, I have a a hand right now that is doing a little trembling because I had a torn rotator cuff. And I'm thinking, this is what my parents used to talk about while I was watching TV. And they were talking about, did you hear about uh, Sam? He's not. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Now it's us. So it's kind of the way I get, way I get out of
1: bed in the morning and my feet hurt for no reason. <laughs> I thought, what did you do last night while I was sleeping? <laughs> they aged. <laughs> I guess
0: so, yes. They're, they're pickling. <laughs> All right. So spiritually. Yes, sir. Where, where do you sit?
1: Um, I am sort of um, a lapsed traditionalist. Okay. Right. Explain. Uh, well, I'm, my reserve is actually United. And one of the number one questions I get asked when I, I go, go out and talk in places is, you know, um were you part of the residential school right. thing? And my reserve is just south of that uh, Catholic Anglican line. Right. Nice. You know, right? Um, so only, uh, this is what I was explained to me, only kids that came from bad homes or were bad children were scooped up and shipped off to residential school in Brantford. Right. Right. So we had a day school. My mother and I went to the Mud Lake Indian Day School so um our our, our reserve is, is fairly united as is fairly is united and um there was actually one I, I don't know where it was one united residential school somewhere I don't right. I don't remember. anyways getting back to your question um so I grew up in a, in a in a in a Christian environment my my aunt uh used to teach Sunday school and I would help her and then as I got older I had, and left the reserve, I got to have much more experience with traditionalism. My reserve wasn't a traditional community in that sense. Um, and I know it was, it was driven underground in so many different communities. And it wasn't until about the 70s that it began to rise up and assert itself again and um, struggles to the, achieve the prominence it, it had before contact. So I am very much well aware of the, 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 the spirituality that exists within the First Nations culture. Some of it is pan Indian, pan indigenous. Like um, uh, the, the sweat lodge has taken up uh, prominence in many indigenous communities. Um, you know, you've seen your dream catcher. I've seen dream catchers in Australia. <laughs> I've seen them in Germany. Yeah, I've yeah. seen them all over the place. Um, you know, and, and Mexico. sweet grass and sage is now very popular in places yep. where sweet grass and sage does not grow. Same with tobacco. Right. All these different things. So the, the, it's become sort of a, a sense of pan spiritualism, which I think is a good thing in its own way. There's some communities where it's been just absolutely wiped out, the spirituality. I remember I was in two different places. I was in some place, I think, in northern Saskatchewan and, and in southern Alberta. I think it was the, the blood reserve, um, a standoff. Um, and in northern Saskatchewan, in this Cree community, it had been so heavily Catholicized. That um, everybody had had um, French or Scottish names, and no, there was no traditionality left in the communities.
0: Right,
1: but the ironic thing was, the Cree language was very strong. Almost everybody, down to kids, spoke Cree well. Hmm. And then I go to a place like uh, the Blood Reserve in uh, in southern Alberta, Alberta, yeah. where the language has been almost wiped out, but. Their spiritual structure is very much well intact. Even though there was a residential school on the reserve, it went underground, but it remained very, very strong. So there was this guy who was from there, teaching in Northern Saskatchewan, where he was like, he, he was, he's like, I wish I had the command of language that they had, right? And there's there's people up there who uh, were were saying, we wish we we knew our traditions the way he knew
0: his traditions. So when you think of your traditions, what? What has from united to your traditions to now you say lapsed tradition let's go into the tradition part okay when you came out of United into tradition, what did you find
1: well i uh, it's a uh, it's a bunch of the obvious uh, first of all, it is the love, respect, and understanding of how important the land is and where we fit into that grand mosaic Hmm. um i can't go anywhere Uh, i I travel a lot uh four months ago i was in i was in australia three months ago i was in arizona new mexico washington state and oregon um then two months ago i was in brazil last month i was in mexico next month i'm going to be in germany i cannot travel without like stepping off the plane looking around And almost doing that Pope thing where you get down and kiss the ground. I don't go that far. But in your heart. But in my heart. And I have been known when I'm by myself just to sit down and touch the ground. So I, I am very much aware of when I travel, the land I'm on and how that land helps create those indigenous people that have populated that area and you go to places like the Caribbean where most of the islands, the indigenous people have been completely wiped out of existence. And, um, Thompson Highway did, said had this speech once when he goes through Europe and he says, Europe, when he steps off the plane, he said, it smells different because there's not one yard of Europe that hasn't been drenched in blood for 2000 years. And he says the, the, the land reflects that. And I, and I remember that and I keep that when I travel and I, and I, I look around and I see how the land is being treated and how the, 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 the people have been created by the land and how the dominant culture is sort of dealing with those two issues.
0: There's a lot in that. <clears throat> you know that you made a gesture with your hand about when no one's looking, basically. I touch the ground. So it's not you don't get to do it with an open celebratory ritual right you just sort of
1: well sometimes it is a celebratory <clears throat> ritual and sometimes it's a personal thing yeah. right you know um oftentimes the most personal things are the deepest things whereas you know you can you can go to all these different ceremonies from every different thing but uh, every different culture every different religion but i i think it's the personal ones that that are the more most intrinsic the most the, the the one that have more of an effect on the individual rather than the pomp and circumstances.
0: So is there in your schema your spiritual schema is there god? Oh, of course there's the creator. The creator.
1: The, cr- the creator who um, who is basically, you know, responsible for everything. And there's again one okay, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself.
0: Okay, go for it. Let me
1: let me uh, let me focus. First of all, at time of contact in 1497, when John Cabot landed somewhere on the East Coast, Uh um, it's estimated that there were over 50, 50 to 60 separate languages and dialects spoken in Canada. That's like discovering Europe. I'm sure there are over 50 to 60 separate languages in Europe, yet there's no one European anything. Right. So in talking about the creator, talking about, god talking about um uh the every individual uh indigenous person's relationship to creation that i can't give you one different answer for everybody because there's so many different perspectives on how they relate to the creator and the land um just like you know as i say um uh, finland is different from holland is different from france which is, is, is different from portugal so um when you were asking what is the indigenous relationship to God, or I forget how you put it. I can't answer that. I can only answer mine for yours. So what is yours? Mine is I, I, I have a very strong belief that there is a higher purpose, a higher understanding, whether it's a God, whether whatever, I just think that there's so many unexplainable things in this universe that if that it, it, the, believe it or not there's so many unexplainable things that there has to be an explanation for it that being <laughs> a, a higher understanding that's the way i prefer to do it is right
0: say, right so even if it's unknowable to us there's something well, going
1: on yes the the term uh manitu," right which is which has entered pop culture meaning great spirit it actually does not mean great spirit what does it mean great mystery
0: Ah, beautiful.
1: That is actually what it means, great mystery.
0: The, to, for many people, the spiritual path is questions, not answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So it would be the great mystery. So if you, uh, uh, if you open yourself to that, to the great mystery, and you connect yourself to the land as your intermediary between you and that mystery, and that everything is alive, that this... Yeah. This entire universe is alive how does that how do you fit back into this rather mundane materially driven kind of culture that we're in now how how do you get yourself you know back into hey how are you ice cream helps <laughs> Which kind? <laughs> maple, walnut, pralines, and cream. You are absolutely wrong on the maple walnut. No, no, continue. no, 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 no! But no. trying to oppress me with your ice cream favorites. Yeah, Neapolitan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, but how? You know, uh, where do you put that? Oh, let's go. But let's go. Let's go to that 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 thing I said at the beginning before we started talking about the uh, the land dedication.
1: I first discovered the land dedication in, of all places, Australia. I was there for a theater conference in Australia, and I was sitting there. This was about uh, 12 years ago, uh, 11, 12 years ago, because the whole land dedication has only been around for about six, seven, eight years. So about 10, 12 years ago, I was in Australia, and they were doing that. And I remember sitting there going, oh, that is so cool. That is so wonderful. And I wrote it in an article when I, back then. And I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if we can do this here? And then about four or five years later, it started popping up at various events. And I'm sort of going, oh, that is so cool. And I know what you're saying about it's become kind of ubiquitous right now. Yeah. Does it have a relevance? I remember growing up, going to school we had to say both the Lord's Prayer and sing um, Air, uh, O Canada. And, I mean, it, it was literally just going through the motions, you know. You just sit in there, you sing, you do it, waiting for it to be over so you can go and do something else. It meant nothing. Right. You know. So in terms of this, I'm sure to some people out there, it meant nothing. They they listened to it and... Um, I, I hear it a lot when we have when I'm at a play or something like that, and you know, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are saying, "Okay, let's move on. Let's let's go to the the, the, the play." And I uh, that is something up to the individual. Did you did you see my play, Cottagers and Indians? No. There's actually one of the things in it. I break the fourth wall, and I have I have the native character in conversation with the white uh, white cottagers. Suddenly, break goes. Oh yeah! Before I forget, he turns to the audience and he does a land acknowledgement. In the in the middle of it, because oh yeah, right, we got to do this, and he does it, and then he goes right back into the conversation with the Fantastic. woman. Fantastic. So it's now become part of the I don't know the zeitgeist, the the pop culture, right. right? So my opinion on it is, it is a strong, important gesture that people. Let me put it this way: it's there, and I'd rather have people hear it and ignore it than not hear it right. at all. Right.
0: Yeah, I totally hear that. Yeah. So is there more? So what do we? The problem for me is that you can then go, well, that's taken care I of. feel good now. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, we're still in hell, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I don't see this getting better. I mean, if you fluke out... You know, you you know. I'm reading. A, I just started a book on the Osage, and you know where they get sent to Oklahoma because it's like okay, that's
1: Indian Indian country. It was called. yeah,
0: garbage country. Meanwhile, they get oil and yeah. they're, and they're richer than anybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So that's not that doesn't fit the paradigm. You know, you're supposed to be uh, uh, shuffled off. W- where do you? What's the way forward for? Like for instance. I've worked with groups that have tried to engage politically with Native political movements, and there's a wall there. Um, I don't know who made it. I don't know how why it's hard to walk over it. I even drive by a, a reserve and think, can I go in there? Like It's like being a Jewish guy and walking by a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go in and, and experience their service. You just want
1: the free wine.
0: <laughs> and the biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I like the idea of, the, of, of, of of witnessing their service, but I'm afraid I'm going to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk in there and, go, and they're going to go, well, that guy's, what's he standing up for? He's supposed to be sitting down. He's not one of us. And I get the same feeling when I think about, oh, should I go to Six Nations? It's near me in Hamilton. Should I just go in and... It, well, what do I do? Where's my point of contact? How do I, how do I come in there and say, you know, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know where the bridge is for that. How do I do that? Well, I know
1: I get, I get that from a lot of people who, who, how I don't know how to put this, aren't well versed with the uh, current sociopolitical political, uh, res system. Um, the truth being told many reserves re, um, harvest a sizable amount of revenue from non-native tourists. Right. My reserve has a place called Weetung's Ojibwe Crafts, and um, it has everything from uh, $100,000 paintings and sculptures to $2 wooden tomahawks. So and that's my
0: way in, to go, well, to, to go to the gift store. I would have to say... nine. Uh, like how, how do I go in and just go, hi. Um, what's going on?
1: Well, I, I don't know. Like what? Do you just knock on a door and say, you got no, anything to eat? Commu-
0: <laughs> Is Drew
1: home? Yeah. <laughs> he owes me money.
0: <laughs> he left his thing. I've been looking for him for weeks. He's driving me His nuts. retainer. <laughs> his re- and I mean his mouth retainer. I don't mean his lawyer. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know what I'm saying?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, if I go to a, a small white town how and I show hu- up, how do I? How do I get into that?
0: Do I just? Again- how, how do we hug? How do we walk into each other's space and go? Uh, I I want to be, I want to be one of the good guys in this conversation, and not one of the ones who goes, "Oh, too bad about that." Moving on, uh, and it's not enough for me to sit there and listen to a land de- dedication. It, but there's this thing where I don't even know if it's a trust issue. Because right? Right. I'm the white guy, so uh, some of my best friends are white, and some of
1: your best friends aren't. <laughs> <laughs> there are wonderful, clever people that have been, been maligned far too long. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, though, that I mean, I don't know. It's like if I go to a small town, how do I get into that small town's community? It's it's
0: it's you go a restaurant, you hang out, and you come back the next day and the next day, I guess.
1: Well, like as I can, yes, that could work on most reserves, just don't drink their water. <laughs> First of all, get us good clean water. That's a good place okay, to bring see,
0: water in. I'm not the guy,
1: right? Nobody's the guy. Well the government is the guy in this the case, government is made up of uh, what is it uh, 330 MPs or something like that who
0: all have to listen to their leaders and are all it's puppet theater. This wonderful the thing you call democracy. Yeah well, you know it was an attempt it sometimes serves a purpose what is that What's that
1: description it's the best possibilities of all the worst options
0: yeah which is you know a way of feigning away from its its deficiencies because of mm. the way we practice it is there anything that we can when you think of yourself in terms of why you're here because I always wonder somebody's prolific as you what is it 33 books now? my 33rd
1: book came out yes and yeah. we're, I'm, uh, this week I'm starting, I'm in the middle of my, of a new novel. I'm commissioned for two plays. I've got another book of, of essays and articles in my mind. And I'm hopefully, I've got people interested in working on television series with me.
0: This is crazy. So what, what is the fuel? What is it that, because most people can't deliver like that.
1: Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to use a very odd metaphor. Okay. It's like working out like in a gym. Okay. You go day one. You go and you do um, back and shoulders. Next day, you go and you do legs and core. And, uh, other day, you do chest and ar- or sh- uh, shoulders and arms. T- t- whatever I left out. Basically, for me, writing depending on what I'm writing uses different parts of my brains. Mm. So if I write a novel, I'm done. I don't want to think or work on a novel for the for a long time. So I'll work on a play, which is a different structure, different form that is that is different. And then after that, I'll go work on some essays, maybe a television show, whatever. Uh, so that's that's how I, how I sort of keep writing because it's just using different parts of my mind, like going to gym, using different parts of my body, letting the other part heal. Um, as for the stories, I'm a firm believer that the world is full of interesting things. The creator, if I may use that term, is a far better writer than I am. I just plagiarize the creator.
0: Mm, tell me more about that
1: you sit on a bus for an hour looking around uh, and you look at people and some people like especially a city bus you just sort of see these people you, you can many of them are just stories waiting to be written you watch the news and you see all these things happening out there you, uh, you walk the streets you just you know there's just so many different things happening at any given time that if you don't see it you're blind Mm. i don't people ask me uh if i ever get writer's block and i envy those that get writer's block why because i'm sitting here right now talking i've got four novels in my head i've got three plays in my head i've got short stories essays i and i just don't have the time to write them all Mm.
0: and uh, just because i just but you don't see them as coming from you they're coming through you
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. The, as I said, the world's a far more interesting place than I am. Mm. I just look around, I see what's happening, and as with any writer, it makes me ask questions. Why did this happen? What would happen if this happened? Who's involved in this? How can I? How how can I make this interesting? And, and I, you know, it just—it's hard to explain the process. It just—it—it it, it is part of the great unknown, the great
0: mystery. So when you, you the mystery. Now, so when you, when you see yourself, other people see you and call you an indigenous writer. Uh, yes. Are you good with that? Or are you just like, I just, well, I'm a human?
1: Well, first of all, as you say, I, I'm sitting across from you with blue eyes and, <laughs> and, and light hair and, and before Mexico, a fair skin. <laughs> um, it, is, it is a problem. I mean, I grew up on a reserve till I was 18 and then I moved to Toronto specifically for college and Thai food not a lot of Thai food on the reserve. And um, so my entire psyche, my entire upbringing is reserve-based. Right. I am a what's called a Res Indian. And um, almost everything I've ever written has been indigenously based because that's how I got started. That was my frame of reference. And now that's what people expect from me right I'm uh, I heard me mention that I may be in, I, I'm being approached to work on two television series you know the death rate I've, I'm not expecting to get any of these like there's like 20, 20 projects of which one or two will get made yeah yeah so um, this may or may not happen but again they're native themed and they go to me because I've had experience writing for television um, I do not I'm happy with that because I think uh, the dominant culture has had several thousands of years of writing. They have an amazing arsenal of literature, whereas basically Native people have been writing their stories for maybe thirty, forty years, and we still have a lot more to write.
0: Does that fuel you oh, in terms completely. of all that prolific prolific writing? Is it's just like I got to get a lot of this out now?
1: I I think so. I'm I'm uh, you heard me mention the contemporary Native literary renaissance. I am so. Blessed, lucky, and honored to be to to be um, on the on the first wave of that. Yeah, to be be a part of it and get out there because you know I was I was there with uh, with Thompson Highway, right. Daniel David Mose, etc. cetera. Um, now, what is exciting right now about this whole genre is I I told you earlier about the what was basically the three themes emanating from Native literature for a while. It was, uh, but now it's beginning to expand it's become to beginning to get really interesting native literature is beginning to explore the dominant cultures um genre fiction my first novel was a native vampire novel my second novel was is a form that i didn't hitherto did not know until i wrote it something called um magic realism yeah my last collection of short stories was science fiction. The the novel I'm working on right now is a horror novel. Um, Tom King, when he's not writing award winning um, fiction or nonfiction, he writes murder mysteries, mm. right? And not, and so it's really interesting the things that are happening right now. The two the two most the most successful YA novel in Canada in the last two years was written by Sherry Demerlane and is a uh, a dystopian nat- YA native. Novel Mm. in America. One of the most successful writers in the last three years is a Pueblo woman named uh, Rebecca Roanhorse who wrote a novel called um, Trail of Lightning that was so won so many awards and so well liked that she was commissioned by the Star Wars franchise to write a Star Wars book.
0: Wow. So
1: and it has nothing to do with being native. Right. Like her her award winning book Trail of Lightning was native based. Right. So getting back to your question with me. Yeah, I, yes, I I can see myself someday doing something non-native. My dream someday is to write a Star Trek. Oh yeah, I would. You know, I can't say that I might not sneak a native character in it or something like that. But well, they had one a, on Voyager. Uh, no, they didn't. He um, sucked. <laughs> that,
0: that's I, I'm a I'm a Trekkie. So, so am I. That series live long and prosper. Live long. Ooh. That series sucked that that particular one i I liked, I literally like every other iteration so far I haven't seen even enterprise one. yeah, you know what I really dug enterprise I have to say i I got into it uh, I'd always I, I think I'd seen one years ago and thought eh, that sucks and then uh, it was on Netflix and I started watching it and I thought, I like this idea that you can't. The transporter is something you're afraid of.
1: <laughs> it's a new. It's a
0: new it, technology. You can yeah. get scrambled in this thing, yeah, yeah. which is my Galaxy Quest, right? When they <laughs> try to get the guys to come back up, <laughs> and it's squirt. yeah. But I. But for me, that became uh, this really funky. You can only get to warp five, kind of, yeah, kind of thing, and there were things I liked about, it. and I liked to Paul as as the sexy Vulcan. I know you and
1: notice all the men wore long, yeah, bulky wore robes.
0: 50- she was in spandex the <laughs> yeah. whole way, you know. And I get that because there's always one of those in every Star Trek. Uhura, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. part of the it's part of the mystique. It's sort of like Commedia arte. There have to be archetypes. Exactly, you got to exactly. use them all in there. Like Second City has to have, you know, the the overweight guy and the the skinny guy. It, it's all the way you do it.
1: Did you see the documentary on um, yeah uh, Deep Space captors? Nine? Oh, no, no, Deep Space Nine. Oh yeah, no. The guys who created Deep Space Nine probably getting off topic here. Did a documentary about the the um, the arc of that series. Oh yeah! And one was the one of the interesting things that came up is the actor and the showrunner had purposely made Garrick. You remember Garrick? Yeah, he was gay, Ah. and he was after Bashir. Oh. if you remember they had a lot of lunches together yeah that's right and they, that
0: was they the never Kardashian came out and, and, yeah. Yeah, and the doctor, yeah and
1: they never came out and said it and he says that's one of my greatest regrets that we were we pushed the envelope on everything but we never quite pushed that envelope yeah, they should
0: have they should have they should have so if you did a native star trek what would it look oh, like? oh a
1: native star trek what would it look like uh, well i like, he, would the what,
0: command structure be the same
1: Oh you're uh, you're you're catching me on a fly here but what would be interesting f- is the fact that it would be the the the, the Star Trek universe are the colonizers Absolutely. So if you put Native people in, it would completely shift the paradigm.
0: Because it, right now it's a colonial enterprise. Uh, every, every one of them is a colonial so enterprise. To go out and seek new
1: worlds and new civilizations, yeah. right? Yes. And but then
0: uh, the, the whole... Non-interference with the savages.
1: Yes, exactly. Right? Let I them mean,
0: develop under their own...
1: Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: So you'd have to reverse all that and have the technology go into the indigenous culture. But then once they leave their own... Co- like, can wouldn't... Would you be happy if Indigenous culture recolonized Canada back towards what pre-contact?
1: Well, I, getting into the world of science fiction, yes. Um, there was a couple of interesting. There was a book written, oh God, back in the seventies, I think. You know the name Martin Cruz Smith. Yes. Right? He wrote Gorky Park. He wrote right, Stallions Gate, right. all these different things. He was originally a journalist for, um, I think, Rolling Stone. And he had a friend who had a publishing company. He's one quarter, I think it's Navajo. Right. And he had a friend who had a publishing company that was about to go under. And he said, I need a book in 30 days. Here's your chance. So he sat down and he wrote this book in 30 days. And it was called The Indians One. And it it, uh, the first part of it takes place in the late in the mid 17 or 1870s, just after Little Bighorn, when all the great chiefs—Geronimo's there, Sitting Bull, Crazy um, Horse—all these different chiefs from all around who are just beginning to get into conflict decide to band together, and they they keep almost every the interior part of America indigenous, and America as we know it is basically a 200 mile. Um, periphery along the coasts. Right. And so it's about what would have happened if they had remained native and the rest, you know, it it was actually quite poorly written.
0: Yeah, but it's a great idea. It's a
1: great idea, kind of poorly written. Um, But, getting back to, again, your original idea, one of the projects I would love to do if I could, find the time and the effort because it takes so much research is what would happen um you know i'm a history buff um uh, columbus and all that sailed over in 1492 uh part of that was the after effects of um the, the the great plague of 100 years prior to that which had killed off i think it was a quarter of europe right. what if the plague had done had done worse and killed off half and delayed that whole thing, where Columbus's ancestors had been killed or whatever. And they never, he never ended up going where the civilizations in North America had been allowed to progress, that the Aztecs had gotten bigger. The um, Haudenosaunee Confederacy had expanded um, the Ojibwe up. Um, there's an Island out near Thunder Bay that looks like it's been mined for copper for thousands of years. Right. And all this stuff happened. If the, the, The uh, Haida, their huge, magnificently designed war canoes, they discovered the sail. Right. If all these things had happened, and then Europe had recovered two, three, 400 years later and had come over, what would have
0: happened? Right.
1: Or, yeah, so, you know, so... That'd be cool. That would be so cool. So that alternate universe, uh, multiple uh, universe type scenario, that's, that's on my bucket list to write someday.
0: God, there's so much inside you that you uh, you just keep bringing it out. I mean, I, I, I can be quiet. No, but I do see that urgency, like the, the urgency of the I'm writing. I'm 57, <laughs> right? But look at the at the rate you've been going since you were 27. I mean, you just yeah. I
1: actually started in my mid 20s because I was uh, my my grade 11 English teacher. My mother told me not to be a writer, so I gave it up. <laughs> my first legitimate writing credit was at the it was uh, of all things. I'm sure you found this out, an episode of The Beachcombers. Yes. I wrote it when I was 25 <laughs> because it, it was like, I did, it was a bizarre series of circumstances. I was asked to submit some ideas for, for the heck of it. I did it just as a joke because I'd grown up with it. They bought the first one, I had to write it. I, I wrote it, they shot it, and it was their uh, 17th season ender. 17th season. Yeah, they were on for 19 seasons.
0: I know, you know, what always killed me about that show is they were on for 19th seasons. when they got canceled, everybody in, in the show was complaining bitterly, and I thought, are you crazy? I know. You got 19 seasons out of that sucker.
1: And it'd become such a nine-to-five job that they'd show up at like eight in the morning, go home at like <laughs> six at night, which never happens. Anybody <laughs> seen Relic? Yeah, Has exactly. anyone
0: seen Relic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so when you... See now, and you're, you are talking about getting older. Does everything start to take on a different lens? Because, you know, when we're young, it's all about the, what can I do? Am I capable of this? Yeah. What's my ambition going to, how's my ego going to help me get through this? Now, you know, in the Hindu culture, they talk about the householder part of your life where you make family, you raise family, you have house, you know, you have a career. Um, but then you get to the other side of your life the contemplative part of your life you still are highly productive but are you seeing some shift in yourself yeah uh,
1: earlier we were we were talking about you know getting old sucks and i have to say the older i get the more at ease and confident i get when i you know when i was younger i was always nervous uncomfortable can i do this will this be okay what what am i going to do next now um it's sort of like I've got some money in the bank. I can do this. and more importantly, every, every project I do, I do because I want to do it. You know, right. struggling writers, we, we, we take contracts to write industrials sure. or whatever PSAs, whatever. Now I only do the projects I want and not, and now it's getting to the point where I have to turn down projects. I want to do just because I have other projects that I want to do more. Right. Um, I'm still very contemplative because I just sort of, I've seen, I've traveled the world. I've met, Interesting people I've had interesting relationships, and it's just the older I get, the more amazing I find the world. i find the world and i um, I still love traveling it's getting harder to travel I don't recover as much from jet lag as quickly, but I now I just have an, a great appreciation of what this planet can offer and what I can offer the planet
0: it's interesting you're not it doesn't sound like you're when you say the world is amazing, and then I think of climate change, and I think of, uh, I think we're at war with ourselves. We're at war with nature. We're at war with, with God, you know, that we've become God, and we're not very good at it. Um, and I wonder, what place does that have in your universe, that, that Australia's on fire? What, you know, what, what, what place, for someone who, wants to touch the ground when they get out where where's your connection now with all
1: that well i think that you can find beauty anywhere i think you can find resilience you can find um, if i don't know if this is a word amazingness in the depths of a of a of a garbage dump that probably sounds too too wussy or whatever but i do believe that Yes, there are so many tragedies happening in this world right now. Um, Australia, I was like, I was in Australia three months ago. I was in in, in Melbourne for the the Writers Festival, um, and it's tragic. You look at the video of that, and you just hang your head and just sort of think, what What are we doing to this planet? And the fact that some people don't even realize it, you know, they they're just blind to it, and just sort of you know, pl- they're using the cliche, they're 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 playing their instruments while a Titanic is sinking, Ooh. you know, get a boat, <laughs> start bailing. <laughs> Change there <are> all, course. <laughs> exactly. There's alternate things you can do and you just wish people would do it. I, uh, if I stop finding beauty, if I stop finding the human situations, then I think I've lost and the bad forces in this world have won and there's no point in writing anymore. Mm. I'll build myself a bunker somewhere, get uh, get 40 tons of maple walnut ice cream.
0: Canned corned beef? No, 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 no,
1: no. no, no hey, thing. come
0: on, it's a bunker. <laughs>
1: I like my beef uncorned. <laughs> it's a native thing.
0: You know, I think sometimes people think native people are supposed to be the ones that are going to bail us out. We would love to, but we have no power.
1: We have, or we, I should say, we have very little power. Well,
0: the pipelines in Canada, you, you know, you have native blockades. And
1: yes, but some native people have accepted it. One, one of the interesting sure. things is not everybody realized that. Again, there were over 50, 50 separate languages and dialects. There was, uh, I, uh, separate nations with different priorities. Absolutely, and some, some nations have said. Come right through, you know. Pay us, and you may use our land. Others have said no, don't. Yeah. So it's not. It's not a unified front.
0: When you say you're you're a lapsed traditionalist, why are you lapsed?
1: Uh, I lack energy.
0: It takes. Oh, en- I don't think so. <laughs> it takes energy <laughs> to be
1: to be to be a, to be a hardcore fu- uh, fundamentalist. Were you fundamentalist? No, I was never a fundamentalist. Um, I'm, I'm, again, trying, uh, using humor to deflect. Yes, um, I, I picked up on that. <laughs> no, uh, I was never a fundamentalist because I have too much healthy respect for what people believe, what all people right. believe,
0: right? But you so, were a traditionalist.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we have amongst our, and I still am in some aspects. Um, like? We have what are called the seven grandfather teachings which are very similar to the, uh, the, the the seven, whatever it is in the, in the Bible. Uh, you have the seven deadly sins, the seven virtues. Ah, yes. Right? You have honesty, you have bravery, you have compassion, you have all the, uh, I can't even remember all seven because that's how lapsed I am. <laughs> but basically, it's just literally how to be a good person, how to lead a good life, how to be a good person, how to be a responsible citizen of this planet. And I heartily believe that. I subcri- subscribe to it. Occasionally, I make mistakes and I wander. But again, as I said earlier, I'm human. We're all human. Right. We do make those mistakes. So I try and live by those seven grandfather teachings, which I don't think is a fundamentalist thing. I just think it's a smart
0: thing. Right. And the seventh generation thinking too, right?
1: Exactly. Every decision we make will have repercussions for the next seven generations. Um, and also,
0: wasn't not it, it also that what came before you for seven generations will dictate where you go for the next seven generations? I thought there was a part of that.
1: That is part of it. The The thing you have to keep in mind, too, about that whole thing is the fact that I, here, here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you what is supposedly an inaccurate translation of a story that may or may not have actually happened. The um, chief Seattle metaphor mm-hmm. that we are all just strands in the uh, spider web of life. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially true, but they're not sure if he actually said that since he did not speak English and it was written in an article about the situation that they think. The journalist actually created, but it's a good
0: sentiment. Right, it's one of these things where if it's not true, it should be true. Chief Seattle has some great quotes. You're telling me none of them are real. Uh,
1: some of them aren't real.
0: I don't know. <laughs> I haven't written that biography yet. Yeah, that would be a good one. I find that one very interesting. Not a lot of. Um, I, I don't see. A, just like in 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 white culture, I don't see. What's the position of, of women in the, in the culture at this
1: point? Oh, very strong. I mean, some cultures are just blatantly, if that's the right terminology, uh, matriarchal or matrilineal. Where, um, I mean, amongst the Haudenosaunee, it was them who, the, the, the clan mothers, who would decide who were the chiefs, who were the war chiefs, and right. they could appoint you and they could remove you. Right. Right. And you have, um, in almost every culture, strong women. I was raised by my mother, I was raised by my aunt. Um, we're supposedly a a patriarchal culture, but uh, there's a line in one of my plays that says, uh, you show show me an uh, Anishinaabe home where the woman doesn't run run, uh, everything and I'll show you a single father family. (laughs) And there's a saying, I think it's a Cheyenne saying, that a nation is not defeated until the hearts of its women are on the ground.
0: Wow, that's powerful. Native Star Trek. Got to get that one done.
1: I'm 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 sitting on the edge of my seat, waiting for that call. <laughs> Rick Berman, <laughs> call me, call me. I'm cheap.
0: <laughs> we'll
1: we'll work for baloney.
0: <laughs> Ooh, I hated baloney. Oh, it's 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 the crater's food. <laughs>
1: Yeah. That whole so, uh, Our creator's
0: food is smoked meat, corned beef, pastrami. That, that was creator's uh, food. Not smoked salmon? Uh, Lox, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm North African. We weren't into the smoked salmon. That was a European thing. So were all those other things, by the way. Our food was lamb, chicken, couscous, you know, stuff like that. We're, we're Arab Jews. We're a different type. You know, because everybody has their hybrids. You know, we all talk about our purities, right? Of course. You know, I'm pure this, I'm pure that, but we're all a bunch of mutts. My standard joke, as
1: I'm sure you found out, is I'm half Ojibwe, half Caucasian. So technically that makes me an occasion. (laughs) A special occasion, (laughs) if not a memorable occasion. So
0: your dad was Caucasian?
1: Uh, To the best of my knowledge. I have it on good authority. I have white blood. But I can't prove it. Do you ever struggle with any of that? I did at one point um uh, but as I said, I grew up on the reserve till I was eighteen, so right. i am I'm, I'm culturally indigenous. I was raised in that environment i I have no idea who my father is or any of that culture, so other than other than the the eyes and the skin um, that has really not really been a part of who I am, though the early part of my career um I started off writing essays and then I did. I started off in theater and, and the occasional um, beachcombers. Um, I, I dealt with identity. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote an essay once just because I was I was annoyed with the world about what it was like living in Toronto and growing up on a reserve being a fair skinned indigenous person. And it was called uh, Pretty Like a White Boy mm. the, observa- the Adventures of a Blue Eyed Ojibwe. And uh, it, I, literally, I, I got in. I was in a cab, I think. And this was around just after Oka and the cab driver was, was talking about Oka. And he said, if it had been up to me, I would have tear gus the place in the second day. Wow. And would have been over. And I realized he didn't know I was native. So I got home. My mind was browning. I was going all over the place. And I did something I almost never do. I, I got up and I started writing. I never write at night because it gets your brain going and it's hard to wind back down. Right. And I and this sort of reminded me of a, all these different things that had happened in my life with about people, both native and non-native people, who had trouble, either did not know or had trouble believing I was native. So I wrote this essay called Pretty Like a White Boy. And it was literally 54 lines One page of a computer screen because I remember back then my computer had 54 lines, and I started dot dot dot, and I did rant for 52 lines, and then I ended with dot dot dot, and I went to bed, Hmm. and I got up, and I reread it, and I thought, oh, there's actually something here. This is interesting, but it had no shape, it had no structure. Uh, I had to you know give it give it an intro, give it give it a, a, a mid body discussion, and end with a conclusion. And I spent about four days working on it and became this really interesting essay that I sold to this magazine. And now it's actually one of the things that I'm most known about because it's taught in a lot of universities in humanity courses because it deals with being mixed blood, but from a humorous perspective. And
0: what do you say in it?
1: Oh, well, I say, uh, I get, uh, you know, um, I've, I've gotten flack from native people. I've gotten flack from non-native people about what it, what it means to be native and what they think I am. And and, and, it, and it's, it's, it's difficult. So at... After listing all these different things that happened to me, um, like, for instance, once I was shooting a documentary uh, uh, with a, um, these two sisters who were women trappers up in northern Ontario, and they were look, had a, there was this little girl they were looking after, a native girl, who absolutely refused to believe I was native, just would not believe I was native. And so after we finished shooting, we're, we came back, and we were packing up the equipment, and this little 11-year-old girl who had, I guess, taken a shine to me um, was uh, talking away, and she said, Do you want, Would you like some tea? And I was busy and I said, no, I don't, uh, I, 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 I don't want any tea right now. And she suddenly points at me in victory and says, see, you're not native. All Indians drink tea. Mm. So I just sort of, all these different <clears throat> things about being white and being native and having to prove it and having to prove it and thing. but it was all humor based. And uh, as I said, it became one of the things I was most known
0: for. So if you didn't have the humor and you moved it aside, what would be underneath it?
1: There'd be a little bit of anger. I choose humor over anger. I've given a choice of making somebody angry, making somebody laugh, or making somebody cry. I will choose to make them laugh. Because you can teach as much through humor as you can through straight angry drama or, or, or sad drama. It's, in fact, if anything, it makes it much more palatable. Um, Tom, Tom King and I have talked about this, where if you have somebody on a street corner, standing on a box, screaming at the world, you'll stop, you'll look and you'll walk on and completely ignore them. But if they, you get told the same message wrapped in humor, you'll stop, you'll listen, you'll laugh and you'll go on. Why do you think three quarters of America get their news from um, uh, the daily show and Saturday night live? Right.
0: Easier to take. The laugh can help. I mean, the crying can help too, though.
1: Well, it's cathartic. Yes, it, 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 it can help.
0: It can like help. Some, but sometimes they say the, the, the spiritual life is only possible through the broken heart. <laughs>
1: right. Well, I mean, you look at, look, look at the, 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 the Greek mask, right? Comedy and tragedy. Right. They're, they're, they're two sides of the same thing. Was it Woody Allen or somebody who said uh, comedy is tragedy plus time?
0: Right. Exactly. What's the name of the latest book?
1: Uh, it's a it's a called chasing painted horses, and it's a it's it's a drama with lots of humor. Whereas motorcycle and sweetgrass was humor with some drama, right? So it's actually a, a, a serious story that I've tried to um, punch up with humor.
0: And wh- who's putting it out? Cormorant Press. Right. Do you work with them a lot? This is my first book with them. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't think you worked with yeah. them a lot. Oh, cool. And it's available anywhere.
1: It should be, or
0: we need a new distributor. <laughs> which you could find out unfortunately was true and then you're like, great great Yay! They, I thought that was a joke <laughs> well <clears throat> I thank you for coming in I really appreciate it bueno mucho bueno mucho <laughs> you've been in Mexico for what how many days <laughs> it was almost three weeks well great because I do I'm fluent so we can try this so, anything else you want to say in Spanish uh,
1: uh, dos cerveza
0: por favor <laughs> frío Frio? Yeah, cold. Oh, cold. Gotcha, are, this is gotcha. frio, por favor. Yeah, not free. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the whole other thing. Uh, Drew Hayden Taylor, and uh, I thank you very much, seriously. I uh, really appreciate you doing this with me. And uh, I, I wish you nothing but luck in getting all of this stuff, this beautiful stuff that continue to flow through you because uh, your your level of production is prodigious, but the talent that's in there is fantastic. So I really appreciate that you do what you do. Miigwech. Miigwetch. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgi. Not That Kind of Rabbi is the name of this particular podcast. Mike, can you tell them how they can find us? Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and a hundred other podcatchers. We're everywhere podcatchers. I like that. Uh, you can also get me at, at Ralph Ben Merge on Twitter, Ralph Ben Merge on Facebook and Ralph Ben Merge at gmail.com. If you'd like to drop me a line, tell me what you think of the show, but please, if you enjoy it, subscribe. Uh, we're building the, the little, uh, not that kind of rabbi nation, uh, bit by bit here and, uh, every little bit helps. So take care of each other and we'll, uh, see you again soon.